Good morning. The scripture this morning is from Matthew 19, 1 through 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to him it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Well, good morning, everybody. Everybody enjoy an extra hour of sleep or getting ready this morning. That's nice. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah. Well, um, this is the third week in a four-week series that we're doing that we've entitled "Biblical Identity." And you know, we've been touching on some kind of sensitive topics, but I want you to hear that what we said from the beginning is that. You know, the reason we're doing this is not because we're trying to be culture warriors or anything like that. The reason that we're talking about some of these different things is because we think it's important to understand who we are, right? And we talked about that a couple weeks ago, that our identity is basically kind of who we, who we see ourselves as. How do you view yourself? That's your, your self-identity, Right. And our identity, it, this isn't some type of, I really hope that as we've been talking about this, it doesn't seem like an abstract or like a kind of a philosophical or an academic type of thing. I hope you see, I hope you see how practical this is. That as one of the mentors that I had when I was in college, as he would often say, that if we see God rightly, then we'll start to see ourselves rightly. And if we start to see ourselves rightly, then we'll also start to live rightly, right? So the way we see ourselves, this affects a lot, doesn't it? It affects our mental health. It affects our decisions. 
It affects our relationships. It affects our actions. It affects our whole lives, right? So we're talking about in this series, we've called it biblical identity because we've said there's so many messages that we hear. There's things we hear from our parents. There's things we hear from culture. There's things we hear from social media. There's ideas that we have in our own minds. But as people who are trying to be disciples of Jesus, as people who are learning to trust, love, and obey Jesus, our primary, our primary question should be is, is I'm trying to figure out who I am. My primary question should be, well, who does God say that I am? And let who God says that I am determine the way I see myself and also determine the way that I live, right? So we've just been looking through the first couple of chapters of Genesis and just asking the question, when God creates humanity, what does he say about us? How does he describe us? What categories does he use to talk about the human beings that he's made? And we've just been saying we want to let what God says about us renew our minds and kind of heal us from any type of any wounds that we might have, have gotten from our, our family growing up or different things people might have said to us or about us or whatever the case may be. Okay, so we, we started off by looking at Genesis chapter 1, and we said, first of all, when God creates humanity, that we are very good, right? And why are we very good? Because human beings, unlike the rest of creation, which is good, human beings have something unique about us, that we are made in the image of God. Remember that? that human beings are made in the image of God. And we said, you know, that can maybe seem like, a, again, this kind of academic, theological, scholar term that what does this have to do with my life? But we talked about this last week, that really what that means is when you get right down to it, the fact that I am made in the image of God, that you are made in the image of God, that every human being that you see is made in the image of God, what this basically means is just that God loves you for the same reason that I love my daughter Rose, my one and a half year old daughter Rose. And I said, you know, she doesn't do much of anything except for eat, poop, and, you know, cry and, and be cute, right? <laughs> but, but I love her. And if she grows up one day and finds a cure for cancer, becomes some type of a fighter jet pilot or something like that, I'm not gonna love her more because I don't love her because of what she does or what she accomplishes. I love her because I made her, <laughs> right? And that's why God loves you. And that's the foundation, that base layer of our identity is that God loves us because he made us. And his image, he, he sees his own image reflected in us, right? And we said the second thing that God says in Genesis chapter one, verses 27 and 28, he says that he says, let's make man, let's make man in our image. And it says, so he created man in his own image. And then it says, male and female, he created them. So the first thing God says is that he created us as human beings in his image. The second thing he says is that he created us to be male and female. And what we said last week when we talked about this is that masculinity and femininity, maleness and femaleness, these aren't just categories or terms that we've made up. These are God's categories. And while that can feel restrictive sometimes, really what it is is it's freeing. And what it does is it gives us the ability to say, hey, I am a man made in the image of God. 
or I am a woman made in the image of God. And I don't have to be the woman that my parents think I should be. I don't have to be the man that society tells me I have to be. I might fit some of those cultural stereotypes. I might not fit some of those cultural stereotypes. I might be a man that likes to eat steak and, you know, play football and belch and whatever the stereotype is. I don't know. <laughs> or, or I might not be. Or I might be a woman that likes to wear pink dresses and likes to, uh, likes, and just really, you know, wants to, to be a homemaker and just wants to, to, be, to be a mom. Or, or I might be a woman who, you know, loves those things and values those things, but maybe, maybe I'm ambitious with my career. Maybe I'm motivated. Maybe I'm driven. Right? And, and in different parts of culture, we could hear voices where we say, well, wait a minute, that's not what a woman's supposed to be. But again, this is freeing because we are image bearers of God. And so our job, my job is not to be the man that social media tells me I should be. My job is to be the man that God tells me to be, the man, the man that God created me to be. And your job is not to be the man or the woman that other people think you should be, but to be the man or the woman that God wants you to be. And that should be freeing, right? So the, the base layer is that we're made in God's image. So he loves us because he made us. And then that second layer is we don't only view ourselves as human beings or human beings made in the image of God who are male and female, right? Now, as we keep looking at Genesis chapter two, what we'll see is that God uses this word when he creates the woman, he says it's not good for man to be alone, so he needs a helper who is fit for him. And we talked about this word fit. Do y'all remember that? We said that they're, they're a fit for each other. And this word, the Hebrew word for fit, it's a really interesting word. It's a combination of two different words, one word that means similar and one word that means different, right? So the man and the woman are a good fit for each other because they're similar. They're both human beings made in the image of God but also they're different. And we said, just like two puzzle pieces, if they're gonna to fit together, they need to be from the same box. They need to have the same image imprinted on them. But they, if they're identical, then you know, they, won't, they won't be joined together. They won't fit together like that, right? And we said, that's, that's a way that we can understand what God's meaning when he says that the man is fit for the woman and the woman is fit for the man, right? But what you see is that, okay, so we need... Two, we need, a man, we need man and woman working together to accomplish the task that God has given humanity, right? Well, how are they going to do that? And what we see is that something very intimate happens, that God, not, he didn't just create them male and female, he created them to be sexual beings. He created them to be sexual people, and they come together, they accomplish God's, God's mission that he's given them by being joined together in this one flesh sexual relationship that the Bible calls, calls marriage, okay? Now, what we're going to do today, the, we're not going to, we're going to be looking at Genesis 2, 1 and 2, but we're really going to spend more time in Matthew 19. So if you're, if you're not there already, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew 19. Okay, Matthew 19 chapter, or Matthew chapter 19 verse 1. Because what we're doing here, it's really kind of cool because this is a situation in Matthew 19 where Jesus is being asked a question 
about marriage, which at the time was a, a con- can you believe this? At the time, marriage was a controversial question, <laughs> right? Uh, Jesus is being asked a question of, about marriage, and Jesus is going to respond to this question by quoting from Genesis 1 and 2, and he's going to tell, he's going to explain what it means. Okay, so we're going to get to see today in Matthew 19 the way Jesus interprets what Genesis 1 and 2 says about about God's image, about male and female, and about marriage, okay? So to set a little bit of the background, okay, so this was in the first century about 2,000 years ago. And so way back, so at the beginning, God said, you know, male and female, and the two shall become one, and, you know, the, the man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But it doesn't take long before people start to have conflict in marriage, and marriage is difficult, and people start separating. And at the time, um, women had very little power in society. They had very little, they were very vulnerable. They had very little ability to support themselves apart from being married to, to a husband and his family. So what would happen would be this, that the man would, you know, he would get tired of his wife or something would happen, and he would just, he would just, get rid of her and he would abandon her and then go find a new wife or go find a couple more wives or something like that. And so what would happen is these women who, again, at that time in society, they couldn't just go out and get a job on their own and they're very vulnerable uh, in that culture. And so the only way they could really support themselves and and be provided for is to to remarry. But the problem is if when she goes to find a new husband – well, the potential new husbands know that she used to be so-and-so's wife, okay? And so they, you know, they would think, well, I don't, I mean, I don't know if I want to do that because, you know, you used to be married to so-and-so and like, you know, you say that he kicked you out, but I don't know what the real story was. And so I don't want him to come looking for me. And, and, and so that's why when, when Moses comes on the scene, when Moses comes on the scene, he doesn't say, hey, divorce is a good thing. He doesn't say, hey, here's some reasons you should get divorced. What he says is, if you divorce your wife, again, he's not saying it's a good thing. He's saying it's happening, that it was a, a cultural phenomenon. He's saying, if you divorce your wife, whatever reason you divorce your wife for, then you need to give her a certificate of divorce, which basically proves, hey, I'm not making this up. He really did say he doesn't want me anymore. Okay, is that, y'all tracking with that? That's a little bit of background. Okay, so at the time, now now we're skipping forward to Jesus' time in the first century, what had happened is that the religious leaders and the Jewish people, they had taken what Moses had said in in the law, in the Pentateuch, about if you divorce your wife for any reason, then you need to give her a certificate of divorce. They had taken that and they basically said, they said, see, Moses says we can divorce our wife for any reason. <laughs> That's what they would say. And so it, by the time you get to the first century, there's this culture where the people, the men feel justified. And, you know, if, if my wife is, if we get in an argument, well, I'm going to divorce her. You know, if, if she cooks a bad meal, there's, there's actually, there's, there's literally, and this seems crazy, but there's literally, there's records of, of people 
of men divorcing their wives because she didn't do a good job of the housework or she stuff like that. For whatever reason, they're saying, well, you know, Moses says we can divorce our wives. All you have to do is give her a certificate and send her on her, her merry way. All right, so that's the context. And Jesus, he didn't view marriage and divorce like that. And so Jesus is walking around, he's teaching, he's traveling, and as he does that, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were the religious leaders at the time, they would come up to him and they'd ask him questions. And they, it says that they were trying to test him. Basically, they're trying to get Jesus to be canceled, okay? They're trying to ask him a question and he's going to say something and it's going to be controversial and then now people don't want to follow Jesus anymore. They're trying to trap him in his words, all right? So that's what's going on here. And what they say in verse, in verse 3 they ask him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Right? And in Jesus' response to this question, he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the way Jesus responds to this question. He basically lays out his theology of marriage. And we're going to see three things about what Jesus says about marriage. And then we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about how this applies to, to us as people that are married or, or unmarried, uh, people that are, that are single, the people that are divorced, whatever the case may be, because we're all sexual beings. And so we need to know how God views our sexuality so that we can know how to use it. We can know how to treat it. Okay? So... So that's the question that Jesus is being asked. The first thing that we learn from Jesus' response to this question, the first thing that we learn is that Jesus believes that when it comes to marriage and sexuality, we should get back to the way things, the way God designed things from the beginning. Okay? The first thing is that Jesus believes when it comes to sexuality and marriage, we should get back to the way God designed things from the beginning. All right, look with me at verse 4. Got a B in front of me. Look with me in verse 4. The first thing Jesus says is, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Okay? And then skip ahead to verse 8. He says, so Jesus basically says, let me tell you this part and it'll make more sense of verse 8. Jesus basically says, well, from the beginning, God created the male and female and said the two shall become one. And what God has brought together, let nobody separate. So basically, no, you can't just divorce your wife for any reason. Okay. But then the, the Pharisees come back and they say, well, but what about this Moses quotes about if you divorce your wife for any reason, then, you know, let, let him give, let that man give his wife a certificate of divorce. What about that? They kind of throw that. They think they've, they think they're ready, but Jesus, Jesus comes back at him. And he says in verse eight, he says, well, why is it? Okay. Yes. Moses said that, but why did he say that? He didn't say that because he's saying, Hey, divorce is great. You know, if, if you're thinking about a divorce, you should really do it. That's not what he's saying. He says in verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. So basically, Jesus is saying, well, y'all were being a bunch of knuckleheads, and you know, y'all were abandoning your wives, and you, know, you, you weren't honoring marriage the way God intended it to be honored, and so to try to keep things from being as bad as they would have been otherwise, 
the whole certificate of divorce system was a way to kind of to to at least allow the women to be provided for after you divorce them or after you kick them out. Okay, so he's saying it's, that, that it's because of your hardness of heart that Moses said that. But look at what he says next. He says, yes, yeah, because of your hardness of heart that he allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Now, there's that phrase again. He says, from the beginning, it was not so. And so Jesus lays this foundation for marriage by saying, God designed marriage. He invented marriage, just like he invented maleness and femaleness, just like he invented humanity. And he had a design for humanity. He has a design for maleness and femaleness. He, had des- he has a design for our sexuality. And we should, try- we should honor that design with the way we use our sexuality and with the way we approach marriage. Okay. Well, it's interesting. I don't know if you guys listen to, so I listen to a lot of podcasts. One of the podcasts that I listen to on occasion is the Joe Rogan podcast. Anybody else listen to the Joe Rogan podcast? He's a, uh, I know Cameron does. (laughs) Um, But so he's a, he's not a believer, but he has a a lot of different people from kind of all over culture that he interviews and conversations with athletes and with scientists and with political commentators and you hear a lot of different perspectives. And if you have listened to a certain podcaster or a particular commentator, if you listen to him for over a period of time, what you find is that you kind of start to, you realize, okay, they have a few different things they like to rant about. <laughs> and you know when it's kind of getting close to that topic, I know what he's about to say, and then, and then there he goes. And one of the things that I've noticed that Joe Rogan rants about a lot and if you've ever listened to him, maybe you've heard this, is about marriage. And what he says is marriage is just such a stupid concept. It's just such a, why do we think it's this old fashioned idea? Why do we have to have a marriage? Why can't we just, if you, if you love somebody, then you just love that person. If you want to live with somebody, you just live with them. Why do we need to get all entangled in all this legal stuff. And he says, you know, marriage is this old-fashioned thing that we need to kind of grow out of, okay? And what we're seeing from Jesus in Matthew 19 is that Jesus believes marriage is not something that we came up with at one point in time because it was helpful for our society and that, okay, if we don't need it anymore, maybe we can get rid of it. He's saying, no, God invented marriage, and so we should do marriage. Marriage is important, first of all, because God invented it, and second of all, we should, we should use our marriage. We should operate it according, according to the operating manual, all right? So that's the first thing that we learned. We learned that Jesus believes that when it comes to marriage and sexuality, we should get back to the way things were in the beginning. The second thing we learn is that Jesus believes that the definition of marriage is one man and one woman together for one lifetime. Jesus believes that the definition of marriage is one man and one woman together for one lifetime. Look with me at verse 4. Look at the way Jesus talks about marriage here. So he's asked a question about marriage. He's not asked a question about male and female. He's just asked a question about marriage. But look at what he says. 
In verse 4, he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So he's saying, if you want to understand marriage, you have to understand maleness and femaleness. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Okay, so listen to what he's saying here, because I know this is, I know this is countercultural, and some of you might not agree with with that definition. But again, what we're trying to do is we're trying to see how does God view this? How does Jesus view this? And then run our views on sexuality and marriage through that filter. So he says that we're created male and female. And then in verse five, he says, therefore, therefore a man will leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife. Okay. So he's saying the reason that a man leaves his father and mother and is joined together with his wife is because God has created males and females, and he's created them to be fit for each other. Remember, we talked about that last, last week, that men and women are similar to each other in some ways, and they're different from each other in some ways, and that's what makes us a good, a good fit. And not all men are the same and not all women are the same, but God has created us, male and female, so that we could be joined together in that one flesh sexual relationship that he calls marriage. Now, this is kind of a, I know as I say this, um, just trying to put myself in your shoes, I, I don't know how, where, where you, how that kind of hits you. Maybe that seems offensive. Maybe that seems closed-minded. But I think we could all agree that that's a, Today, that's a countercultural thing to say, isn't it? And I think we can make the mistake sometimes of thinking that that's a countercultural thing to say in 2021. But the truth is, it is countercultural in 2021. But the truth is that the Bible's definition, God's definition of marriage, has always been countercultural. This idea of one man coming together with one woman for one lifetime. That's always been countercultural. Think about, you know, thousands of years ago in the time of Abraham and Isaac. For them, they would have heard this. They would have looked at Genesis 1 and 2, and they would have thought, just one wife, but I want to have more wives. And because polygamy was, was, very, was very common, and for God to say, no, this is, a, this is one man and one woman that are coming together, they would have thought, well, what if my wife gets old? They're like, well, you're going to get old too. And you should love her, <laughs> right? So it would have been countercultural back then. And it was countercultural in Jesus' time too, for reasons that we just talked about having to do with divorce. Look at what the disciples say in verse 10. So Jesus articulates this view of one man comes together with one woman and they become one flesh and don't separate them. Death is the only thing that separates them until death do us part. Look at the, this, is, this is interesting. Look at the reaction the disciples have. Okay, and again, these are people 2,000 years ago, and we can make the mistake of thinking, oh, you know, they just would have assumed this, and this wouldn't have been controversial, but look at what they say. And the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, then it's better not to marry. <laughs> and basically what they're saying is what many of us maybe sometimes think or what is a common way to think today in our society, which is, if I really meant what I said in my wedding vows, I wouldn't have said them. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I didn't really mean till death do us part. It's just kind of something that you say. <laughs> 
right? And, and so listen to the reaction there when Jesus is saying, no, you can't just divorce your wife because she cooked a bad meal or because you don't get along with her or because you got in an argument or something like that. No, you can't just you can't just do that. And they say, well, why would I want to? If, if the stakes are that high, why would I want to get married? So clearly, this was countercultural for them back then, having to do with the idea of divorce. Well, for us today, it's countercultural because first of all, we often in mainstream culture we don't view marriage as a lifelong commitment, right? We we view it as if you have irreconcilable differences or if you think you could be happier without each other or with different partners, then, then yeah, it's about being happy. And it's also countercultural because we would say, you know, why does it just have to be one man and one woman? What about same-sex marriage? And so what I'm trying to say is it was countercultural back then, it was countercultural today. And the big question is, I think we should be asking, is when, not if, but when the Bible's teaching on sexuality and marriage comes into conflict with our culture and with what we think is right and what might make sense to us because of the cultural period that we've grown up in, can we update God's definition of marriage? Can we update it and say, well, okay, Jesus said that back then, God said that back then, but today we know more. Today we know more about sexual orientation. Today we know more about genetics. Today we know more about biology. And so we think that this is going to work better. We're going to update that definition of marriage. After all, I mean, everything else has to be updated, right? We don't, I mean, think about the things that we, there's not a lot of things we still do the way we did them 2,000 years ago. So don't we need an update here? And I think that's where I would say, and I think that Jesus would say, that no, no, we don't, that God does not give us that authority to say, okay, that's the way he designed it, but today we know, we know better. All right, so that's the, the second thing, is that God's definition, Jesus' definition of a marriage, is one man together with one woman for one lifetime. Okay, well, the third thing that we learn about marriage from what Jesus says in Matthew 19, and this is really important, I think if you don't get this last part, then it's really easy. I think sometimes, to be honest, one of the reasons that we get so bent out of shape about the first two is because we really don't get this last one. And this one is very important, so please listen to me. The third thing that Jesus tells us about sex and marriage is that marriage is not as important as the kingdom of heaven. Marriage is not as important as the kingdom of heaven. If you're like me, I grew up in the 80s, was raised on Disney movies, and I was taught to go find a damsel in distress or be a Prince Charming. And, you know, the, the life, I mean, happiness is about finding that special person and then living happily ever after. And I think we live in a culture, not just a culture that's confused about identity or about maleness and femaleness or about sexuality. But I think we live in a culture that idolizes sexuality. In a culture that says, if you don't have the best case scenario for you in your marriage, in your romance, in your sex life, then, you know, you can't be fulfilled. Because we elevate, you know, sex and marriage are God's good gifts, but we can elevate them to this point where 
happiness and, and abundance of life is all about having the marriage that we want, or it's all about having good sex, or it's all about feeling romantically fulfilled in a relationship. But look at what Jesus says here. Jesus talks about, and we don't use this terminology today, but Jesus talks about eunuchs. Now, a, a eunuch is somebody, literally means a man who's been castrated. But I believe that Jesus is, in this, in this passage, I believe that Jesus is using this term to refer to people that have chosen a life of celibacy. And what a life of celibacy is, or not necessarily a life of celibacy, but have chosen a period of, cel- a period of being celibate. And basically what that means is when you say, okay, I'm a sexual being, I have sexual desires, but I'm choosing to not have sex. That's what, that's what it means to, to be celibate for a lifetime or for a period of time or whatever the case may be. And I believe, and for time's sake, I won't get into it, but we can talk about this later. I believe if you really look at the, the text, and if you analyze it, when Jesus says eunuchs here, he's talking about people that are living a life of celibacy. And he says there's three, he mentions three types of quote-unquote eunuchs. The first one he says is, this is in verse, uh, in verse 12. He says, for there are eunuchs who have been, been so from birth, and that's probably referring to people that have, whether it's birth defects or physical abnormalities, people who I think today, uh, conditions that we might put in the category of, of intersex, where you have ambiguous genitalia or not fully formed or, or situations like that. I think that, that's, that, would, that would be what Jesus is talking about when he's saying eunuchs that are eunuchs from, from birth. And I know this is, you know, is kind of technical and kind of, we don't usually talk about stuff like this in church, but, but I think it's important, so stick with me. And second of all, he says in verse 12, and there are eunuchs who have been made, let me find my place, eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, which is referring to at the time people who, slaves who have been castrated or servants who have been castrated. And then thirdly, he says, that there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So what is that talking about? And what Jesus is saying is that these are people that God has made in his image to be sexual beings who have sexual desires, but for some reason they have chosen to not get married, to not have sex, because they believe that's what will be best for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus himself would be in this category. The apostle Paul would be in this category where they were, they could have gotten married, but they didn't because they believed that God had work that he had called them to do that they wanted to be a part of, and they didn't want to divide time between, you know, their having a wife and children and then, and then doing this work. Okay, so it's this category of people that would say, I'm a sexual being with sexual desires, but for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, I'm going to choose to not have sex and not, and not be married. And that blows our minds because we think, well, you can't be happy if you're not married. You can't be happy if you're not having sex. And Jesus would say, well, that's just not true because the kingdom of heaven is more important than 
marriage and sexuality. Well, let me just, let me give us a couple, I, I, again, I know that this has been a lot, and it's possible for, for you that, you know, you've, you have different convictions or you have different interpretations. And, and again, these are conversations that I hope we can continue to, to have. Let's, let's have these. Let's continue to talk about this passage and other passages. But I want to leave us with a thought, which is, as sexual beings, which we all are, what does it look like for us to apply this teaching in our lives? Okay, well, let me give you one thing, all right? That we, as sexual beings with sexual desires, we need to submit our sexual desires to Jesus. We need to submit our sexual desires to Jesus. You know, Jesus says, he says to his disciples, he says, why do you, or he says to the crowds, he says, why do you call me Lord, 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 but then you don't, you don't do what I say? Jesus says, if anybody, he says, if you love me, then you'll do what? You'll obey my commandments, right? So if we're going to say that we're disciples of Jesus, again, we can't, te- we can't take his teachings selectively. We can't take them as suggestions, right? We need to submit every part of our lives, including our sexual desires to God and under Jesus's kingship and under his authority and lordship. And again, this is tough because we live in a culture where we think that, and I think this is in all of us to one degree or another, where we've been conditioned to believe that we can tell what's right and what's wrong based on what we want. Right? Where if I have a desire for something, an ongoing you know, desire that doesn't go away, well, that must be God's way of telling me that that's what he wants me to do. Now, I remember this is a, yeah, I think this illustrates that a little bit. I remember when I was in college, I was taking a psychology class, and it was a class, I forget the name of the class, but we were watching this video, and this was a video on, it was interviewing this elderly couple, these two people, and they were, I mean, they were very old. They were 95, 100 years old, something like that. And they've been married for 80 plus years. And so the interviewer is this therapist or psychologist, and the interviewer is asking them questions about, hey, so many people today are getting divorced. What's the key to longevity in marriage? And they're asking this couple questions. I still remember, it's this, you know, this little old, very sweet elderly couple and the wife kind of speaks first, and she says, well, I believe the key is that you have to let your husband sleep with other women. <laughs> and I was like, that is not what I was expecting her to say. <laughs> and she goes on to say that, yeah, we just need to realize men are not naturally monogamous. That men are, you know, we're genetically conditioned to want to have multiple sexual partners. And so as the wife, if you want your relationship with your husband to be successful long term, you know, you, you need to not be jealous, but instead you need to, that's the way he is and you need to 
support that and encourage that. And so she goes on to talk about how, oh, yeah, I remember this time when we were, you know, 30 years ago when he he and my friends, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I went and picked him up afterwards or something. And, and, and you see what she's doing there. She's saying that, well, because he has this desire, that determines what's right and what's wrong, right? And what Jesus is telling us is that it's not our desires, and this goes back to, in many ways, the series that we did a few months ago on our need for a Savior, was it's preparing us for conversations like this. You remember that when we said that our hearts are tricky because we want a lot of different stuff, and sometimes we want good things, but sometimes we want things that are not good. And it's hard to tell if I'm just looking at my heart based on what I'm attracted to, what I desire, what's a good idea and what's a, what's a bad idea. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right in the eyes of a man, but in the end it leads to what? To death, right? And so what Jesus is saying that we, our desires are good and they're important, but we shouldn't let our desires determine what's right and what's wrong. We should get back to God's design for things. Okay, so whether we have same-sex attraction or opposite-sex attraction, whether we're married or whether we're single, Whatever situation we're in, as disciples of Jesus, we need to submit fully our desires, all of our desires, including our sexual desires, to him. So I want to recommend two things, and then we'll be done. First of all, I'm going to send out a link in the, the church Slack group this afternoon for an interview by a Christian woman that maybe some of you have heard of named Jackie Hill Perry. And Jackie Hill Perry is a, she is a Christian woman who, from the time she was very little, she had, she had same-sex desires, and she lived as a lesbian for many years and had many lesbian relationships. And then she tells the story of what that was like, and then her journey and her struggle to to put those desires in submission to Jesus. And what she says, and I love this, is that God doesn't promise when we submit our desires to him, he doesn't promise he's going to take those desires away. But what he does promise is that he'll give us self-control. What he does promise is that he'll give us peace. What he does promise is he'll give us the opportunity to be a part of a loving church community of brothers and sisters where we can experience that intimacy that we all long for. Okay, so I'm going to put that out this afternoon. I encourage you to listen to it. Again, she has some great perspectives, and it's something we can continue to talk about. Another thing I want to recommend, you know, if you're in a life group, and this is another plug for life groups, again, today and in this series, we're really just scratching the surface. And what we're wanting to do is in our life groups, we're going to dive deeper into some of these topics. And so this is a book that I'm holding up, and I really recommend it to you. It's by a guy named Preston Sprinkle. It's called Grace and Truth, and it talks about not only what the Bible says about marriage and sexuality, it goes in a lot more depth than I did today, but he also talks about what it looks like to be loving to people around us who believe different things about, about marriage, about same-sex marriage, about divorce, and things like that. So I really recommend this resource to you, and again, if you're in a life group, you might be diving into this as a group and having, having a discussion around that. So, yeah, let me pray for us.
Heavenly Father, we love you, and we recognize that you are Lord. And God, I pray for myself and for each of my brothers and sisters who are here this morning. God, you've made us sexual beings, and you've given us sexual desires. And God, I ask that you would empower us by the power of the Holy Spirit to submit those desires completely to you, that you would be glorified in us as human beings who are sexual beings who are made male and female in your image. And God, please give us grace for each other as we talk about these things. Give us love, give us patience, give us humility as we discuss these topics about which we might have different opinions or different beliefs. And God, I pray you give us unity around the truth of your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.